You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Abusive relationships, ableism, torture, and ghost eating. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. her sight reached that place, the pain did not begin at once. She gazed almost calmly upon that little interval of darkness and flaring light, the glare of torches shining upon a girl's bent red head, and on a man's long body sprawled motionless in the flagstones. Vividly, she was back again in the past, felt the hardness of the cold flags beneath her knees, and the numbness of her heart as she stared down into the dead man's face. Timelessly, she dwelt upon that long-go heartbreak and within her something swelled unbearable. That something was a mounting emotion too great to have a name, too complexly blending agony and grief and hatred and love and rebellion, so strong that all the rest of the stupendous thing before her was blotted out in the gathering storm of what seethed in her innermost consciousness. She was aware of nothing but that overwhelming emotion, and it was boiling into that one great unbearable explosion of violence in which rage took precedence over all, rage at life for permitting such pain to be. Jarell Meets Magic, 1935 by C.L. Moore. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm uh, Philip Rice, your host, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. And today we're talking about uh, our, our second uh, look at uh, author C.L. Moore. Previously we had done one on... Um, uh, Northwest Smith, her uh, spacefaring character, and this is uh, we're going to be focusing on Jarelle Joirie, the her sort of sword and sorcery, um, a character similar to to what uh, we think of as Red Sonia, though that's as we discussed in a bonus episode we did for Patreon. That's uh, uh, what we think of her as Red Sonia is more of the comic book version rather than the original Robert E. Howard story. So yes, this is a, a red-haired sword and sorcery female character um, uh, who is not Red Sonia. <laughs> uh, so we'll be back to discuss this uh, after these messages. Class is back in session, and HyperX has the grade-A gear you need for dorm life, remote classes, and for schooling folks online. Shop the HyperX back-to-school deals going on now at HyperX.com to help make your return to student life a breeze. Comfortable cloud headsets can keep you focused in as you cram for finals with some lo-fi beats and stay productive with lightweight pulse fire mice 
responsive alloy keyboards, and more. Keep your GPA and your KDA high with HyperX products and accessories. Hi, we're Ellen, Steven, and Mark, hosts of Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. Topics include programming, design, tools, and more. We also do interviews and one-hour game jams. Listen to Nice Games Club wherever you get to your wherever you get to your podcast. You get there, <laughs> or at nicegames.club. And we're back. Uh, so, Adam, you you have read all these stories, right? Yes, I did. Um, I, like you, I read. Uh, quest for the Starstone uh, when we were doing the Northwest Northwest Smith stories, um, and uh, which is a crossover between Northwest Smith Northwest Smith and Jarell Jouari, and uh, we uh, and we were both kind of intrigued by Jarell. That the look we got in that, we were kind of like, oh wow, this is an interesting character. We should we should uh, read her. So we did. Yeah, I I actually uh, at that point, and this was. Uh, well over a year. This was in our second season, I think. Maybe, well, whatever. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, was, yeah, second season, yeah. It was a long time ago, and I, I, I had instantly just got the ebook for Jorel and uh, Jorel. Sorry, I keep saying Jorel. <laughs> that would be a different story. But uh, I immediately got the ebook for that. But I didn't actually read it until we were uh, doing this, other than the um, Northwest Smith crossover. Um, well, she is. It, it it it's hard to say very specifically, but it's not. I think it's not unreasonable to say she's kind of the first sword and sorcery heroine. Um, I ha- you have to qualify that because there's a bit of a back and forth here with Robert E. Howard. Um, as we discussed in the um, so we did a little mini sode which is available for Patreons only, uh, where we talked about the origins of Red Sonia. And technically, Red Sonia was a character created by... You can listen to that episode for more details. But technically, Red Sonia was created by Robert E. Howard uh, in, one, in a single story that was set during the Siege of, um, uh, Siege of Vienna, which was a historical event around the 1500s, I think. Um, and she was a, a, a woman warrior, and she was fighting alongside a, another, you know, Robert E. Howard-style warrior, very Conan-like character. Uh, in this case, a German guy, um, and um, that's really her only appearance of technically Red Sonia. Uh, then he created another character called Dark Agnes de Chastelon, who was a medieval French uh, woman who ran away from an arranged marriage and took up sword fighting. And it was a it was a, it was a really interesting couple of stories that he wrote uh, because they were sort of crafting a, an ongoing narrative. They were short stories, but they kind of they they unfolded one by one, and she was still sort of starting to become a sword fighter and, and, a, and a hero as the, because he only wrote three of the, he actually only wrote two of the stories and then the third one had a draft that was finished by someone else. Um, but they were really strong. And C.L. Moore, uh, Catherine Moore, uh, who was a woman, of course, uh, who wrote Northwest Smith, uh, she was really enchanted by them, apparently. She was, uh, she's had really good things to say about Dark Agnes. Um, and uh, she was, so she wrote these stories. Um, now, it's tempting to say she was inspired by Robert Howard, but it's actually kind of hard to say for sure because no one's quite sure when Robert E. Howard wrote the Dark Agnes stories because they weren't actually published in his lifetime. But we do know, again, we know C.L. Moore read them because she commented on them and said she liked them a lot. Um, so C.L. Moore's stories were published in uh, Weird Tales, I believe. Uh, and uh, so she gets to claim the mantle of being the first uh, female 
<laughs> sword and sorcery protagonist. Um, unless there's another one out there, who knows? We're going to keep digging. But I'm pretty sure she would be considered the first uh, female uh, sor- uh, I- female protagonist in the genre that gave us Conan the Barbarian. Um, and uh, but as I say, it it does kind of seem like you can trace it back to Robert E. Howard in that in that way. Uh, did you read the Dark Agnes stories? Sorry. No, I haven't read those. I, I just wanted to. Uh, she had a correspondence with Howard, right? Like they uh, talked to each other through letters. Yeah. I know she had one with Lovecraft, but I, I assume Howard as well, because they were all in the same circle. Yeah, well, he sent it to her because, like, she couldn't have read this otherwise because yeah. she, it was never published. So, um, yeah, she was she she really she was really into it. Um, actually, I, I can uh, see if I got the, the quote here. Um, My blessings. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed Sword Woman, which is the first story. It seems such a pity to leave her just at the threshold of higher adventures. Your favorite trick of slamming the door in a burst of bugles and leaving one to wonder what happened next and wanting so badly to know aren't there any more stories about agnes so um yeah it's not um it 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 sure sounds like (laughs) oh i love these i'm gonna write some of my own that was that was sort of my take on it because she's also french uh of joiri uh although she's a little vague about it but it is set in medieval france Um, yeah it's definitely french uh the the era is uh, completely vague, but it's definitely France. It's it's you know castles and and swords. Yeah, yeah. And... It's, it's like a po- I, I've read like uh, people say fourteen uh, hundreds or fifteen hundreds, which seems kind of late to me. But you know who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I would say earlier because yeah. bear, bearing in mind that you know for a lot of the medieval era, uh, what we would think of as countries like France and Germany and so on were patchworks of a whole bunch of tiny little kingdoms that kind of merged together slowly over the over the years um so Jouari is presumably one of these little small uh, pocket tick kingdoms um it's really interesting isn't it that we don't get her backstory at all like we don't learn what her deal is there's a few hints at it and it's similar to what uh Moore did with uh northwest smith though there's more northwest smith stories uh so we got a little bit more on him but uh, there's one, there was one, uh, Northwest Smith one that was just like a little short thing, um, uh, talking about him having a memory of his, of his time. And there was, there was a girl and he had to run away from or you know, run away from the area for some reason to do with her. And it mentioned that his name wasn't always Smith. And like, that's just like little details we get. And it, it's similar with, uh, with her. Um, as I read in the, uh, opening, there's, um, She's uh, thrust back into uh, the darkest moment of her life, which could be uh, the moment from the first uh, story that she's in. Uh, but it it's read to me like something from her childhood. So it's possibly yeah. her standing over her, fa- her dead father or something along those lines. Yes, I because it I, describes yes. her as a girl and not a woman. So right, right, yeah, that was that was it because it does seem like the first the first story is her. Um, uh, going on a, a mission to, you know, she's been captured by this guy, Guillaume, um, who has conquered her kingdom and she goes looking for vengeance. She knows, uh, it, there's apparently a portal to another dimension under her castle, which she knew about and which nobody wants to brave, of course, but she braves it in order to find something to kill Guillaume with. Uh, she comes, that's the, the, so, the so-called black God's kiss, which, which is the title of the story. Uh, she kisses the black god. She gains this sort of power that's killing her. She gets out. She kisses Guillaume, and he dies. 
And as he's dying, she realizes, actually, I loved him, and I feel very conflicted now. Um, <laughs> yeah, all the all the hate that she was feeling was actually just really intense, um, positive emotion to her towards him that she didn't interpret properly because she's not used to that. Uh, well, which, except er, I, that's I, how I interpreted it. I mean, yes, but it's also like let's. It, it's a little weird because he did conquer her kingdom and uh, uh, forced a kiss on her and put her in a dungeon because she rejected his advances. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's it's um and and it really like she he killed a bunch of her men as far as I could tell. It's not yeah. It, it's not a healthy relationship that they could have had here. And I know it's the Middle Ages. Everyone's kind of violent. It's it's the kind of thing that happens, I suppose. But it, and I mean it's it, it's uh, in a weird way you can sense that she's like, you know, it was just for him to die, but she regrets it. You know, like because she actually kind of did like him. He was kind of a worthy opponent. Um. But yeah, it's not exactly a, you know, for all that this is a story about a, uh, with a strong, quote, strong female protagonist, it's, uh, that's not a very uh, feminist <laughs> note to be striking, unfortunately. No, um, no, it's, it's very messy, but I kind of like that because it's, she doesn't reflect um, modern values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- that's true in a lot of the stories. Like uh, the last, uh, the last one besides the uh, uh, crossover uh, has her, um, uh, going to a castle and there's a bunch of deformed people, um, and she she uh, thinks that you know they must be bad because otherwise God wouldn't obstruct you know yeah, give them right. a hunchback space or that sort of thing. So right yeah yeah, yeah. He, she, that um, was very much a middle yeah she's a middle aged also the, they do mention that for instance she has torture chambers and dungeons and stuff and she tor- yeah. you know like she's done lots of conquering and and all that kind of stuff she's not she's definitely not a not a saint. Ironically, yeah, it's, it's um, the, the yeah, the, and and there's one story where uh, she's she's dying, she's been wounded in, in, in a battle, and she's been taken to the uh, infirmary, and um, as as she's dying there, her body disappears, and everybody there just assumes that you know she's dealt with too many uh, dark things, so the devil's just taken her. <laughs> um, yeah, and we don't know, really see did, what happens when yeah, she comes back all, after that. <laughs> all her men, including her priests, just assume that she went to hell. <laughs> Um, well, I, well I, I think it's more like this lady keeps vanishing into other dimensions. I guess that's happened again, you know. And I, of I course, mean, they, and that that is what happened. It wasn't hell, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that is. I mean, that's how a medieval, you know, person would frame it. It's definitely diabolical goings on. But yeah, like that, they do know just factually that she keeps vanishing off into other dimensions. Like four of the five stories are her going off to another dimension for one reason or another. And um, in a in a, that's a, a Lovecraftian influence, I, I think. Uh, generally. Oh, definitely, it's, yes. Yeah. And there, there's a, a a lot of this. I mean, not that there's not Lovecraftian elements in Howard, because obviously they they knew each other and and shared ideas. But this feels very much like uh, a Howard uh, Robert E. Howard hero thrust into a Lovecraftian world. You know, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, I, and I mean, yeah, I would, yeah, I, I, the Lovecraft's a bit stronger. There's definitely Lovecraftian bits in Howard, as 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 you say, um, but usually it's sort of a boogeyman from beyond space. There's uh, the Tower of the Elephant is a Conan story where he goes, um, he deals with like an extra dimensional being who's in that case been trapped on on Earth and is actually a fairly benign entity, but it's still got that kind of uh, 
it's got that Lovecraftian extra dimensional thing going on. Um, but yeah, here she literally travels into alien, like literally alien worlds, which are. But I, I mean, in the Lovecraftian, in the sense that she's traveling into some place like bigger than she can possibly comprehend, mm. like um, non-Euclidean. Conan, yeah, Conan like goes in, you know, he he has supernatural adventures and stuff, but it, it and Cull, uh, it, it always seems to be like, you know, something he can fight with a sword. Yeah. Um. Like, it's like that uh, thing, uh, who was it, uh, said about Hawkman, you know, he, he's got a mace, so you got to give him a problem that you can solve with a mace. Uh, <laughs> well, have, have you read the Conan stories now? At this point? Uh, not Conan, no, sorry. I, I, yeah. I shouldn't have spoken out of turn. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, I mean, you're not wrong. There are definitely some Conan stories where he's up against something he cannot fight with a sword. Uh, again, the, the, the aforementioned Tower of the Elephant, he, he only, you know, he wins out by, you know, doing doing the bidding of this uh, strange entity but it's more common for just some kind of creature from beyond the the dark to come out of the shadows and he has to kill it at the climax kind of thing um but yeah this is but much that's more all, most most of these stories involve something that she can't um deal yeah. with through uh, martial means and has to you know she, she usually defeats them but it's often through some sort of emotional thing or right trickery or she's been given a talisman that she can break or that sort right. of thing or at what I like in the uh, the Darklands, where she literally uses the magic power of her anger from her own like emotional power, basically turns into a uh, into a fire, which she's able to. It's like it's it's a weird. It's kind of magic in a sense, even though she doesn't know any magic. But it just you know your emotional power kind of comes out in this world, uh, Romne, as it's called, and um, it's uh, it. Yeah, like she uses it to quench the other guy's fire and thereby destroy him. Um, there's there's something metaphorical going on in all this, I think. She's definitely, like, I think Moore was trying to convey something a little... I mean, I, the pulp writers were often just kind of banging out stuff by the word for for ca for quick cash, but, the, you know, the better ones of them had a little bit more going on. Uh, and I'm thinking of how, like, Michael Moorcock would always talk about how, when he was doing the Elric stories, there was always you know, some metaphorical thing going on, some Jungian, th this is too early for people to really be into Jungian psychology and, and, and psychological stuff, psychoanalysis, but, but it's definitely got some kind of metaphorical, like interior journey that she keeps taking essentially. You know yeah. what I mean? Like she encounters a, a being that essentially has her face uh, in black God's kiss that tells her, you know, what she can do to, to, you know, to defeat Guillaume basically. And, it's sort of, you know, it's it's it it's it sort of represents the truth that she doesn't want to face about herself that she's in love with him. Um, and then there's like when she then the next story is literally her going back to rescue to to free Guillaume's spirit because it's trapped as a ghost in this other world because of what she yeah, did. Yeah, and she feels guilty about killing this guy. Uh, right. That she, you know, went into to hell to get a weapon to to kill him, and then mm -hmm. in, instantly feels bad about it, and she's tricked you know, trapped as ghost in some other dimension. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, I mean, that whole story is a metaphor for guilt, right? Like it's a, yeah. it's a journey and she takes a journey and she sees various things that could all be, you know, you could metaphor, you could turn them into metaphors. You'd have to kind of break it down a little more, but uh, it definitely there's like an emotional subtext that's going on in everything to a degree that isn't always true in pulp stories, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I was I was reading some uh, takes on this online, and people were complaining that she's a very passive character, and I didn't 
get that at all. Um, no. Like that uh, things just sort of happen to her and that she, you know, the problems are solved because some magic that somebody gave her. But that's not really the case in most of them, I feel. No, like, she, she, takes, she takes the uh, initiative to go... Uh, to the other world, like, twice. Uh, in, the, in the Darkland, she gets kind of swept along by this dude. But then she's basically... Then she says, I'm going to fight you and find a way out. And he kind of says, well, you're welcome to try. And that's what gets the story going. Um, and then yeah. in Heligard, she's literally on a mission to save her men. Like, yeah, she's... I'd, I'd say she's quite an active character. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I Like I said, I, I very much disagree with that, with that take. But I kept seeing it, and it was weird to me. I, I guess it's, it's just, because she doesn't, you know, kill people with a sword, basically. I, guess that's, I mean, that's, she does, but that's not usually the focus of the story. Right. Yeah, like it's sort of... that's something at the beginning. Or, you know, she's going into a castle and she's killing a bunch of guys, but there's a wizard she has to go after, so that's mm -hmm. what the story is. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very clear that she does lots of... Uh, she's in battle a lot and fighting for her, her kingdom, it's, of which... It's actually interesting because they never refer to her as like a princess or a duchess or a I don't a think lady. it's a kingdom. I think it's just like she has the castle and she has the men in it. I think that's and maybe yeah. a surrounding town. I don't think it's um. Well, I, I think mean, it's just like a very localized uh, ruling because they call her a lady, like with capital L, lady. I guess um, that's true. They call her a lady. Yeah, you, like if you're going to own a castle in the Middle Ages, you're going to be. You're going to be titled, right? Like it's not you're, you're not you don't just. I mean, I even if you set yourself up in a castle and didn't, weren't official, you could you would have to do that because otherwise people would be like, "Why are you living in this castle?" It's a it's a anarcho syndicalist commune where real three quarters. <laughs> of, anyway, so I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, like yeah, it almost feels like she's leading a mercenary company in some ways than ruling a kingdom, right? Like that that's definitely true. Um, but she also yeah, talks about. Go ahead. She's definitely ruling by force. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's true of anything, but like it, it uh, I don't know. It definitely feels like her martial prowess, like her personal martial prowess is a big part of why she's still in charge. Yeah, absolutely. And she does talk about like, I am Shuari, like, like she talks about in the, in the, you know, nobility in the way nobles do. She talks about the land being her and her being the land kind of thing. The tat moi, as they'd say, um, but they, yeah, it's it's it. it Moore is not interested in even the sort of trappings of like nobility at all. It's just like she's a she's a cool warrior maiden, and she has men under her, and that's just the basis of the story. Actually, I will say something because I don't know. She's of course the inspiration for this, and the inspiration for Dark Agnes and everything else is Joan of Arc, right? Um, she's not. Yeah. She's not Joan of Arc because Joan of Arc was a little, maybe a little more holy than she was. She's and not also a very... disguised herself as a man. That's not something. Although it says in the first story that she could be mistaken for a man in full armor, but because uh, she's very tall, but uh, she doesn't like pretend to be a man at any point. Uh, did did Joan of Arc like actively pretend to be a man? Because I thought people uh, knew she was a woman when she was leaving. Yeah, the army. no, she she did, and that's why she was burned when they found out she was female. I thought that was. That I think people knew she was leading armies, and in fact, that I think that was part of the um, part of the appeal was it was kind of like, hey, we've got this teenage girl leading our armies, and we're still beating you, British people. <laughs> like I think that was actually like a sign that God was on their side because she was this holy. 
I mean, she definitely dressed as a man. There's no question about that. Um, okay, I just don't I think it was wrong. actively. I, I, I don't think it was deceptive in that sense. I think she just. They okay, just knew so how it's she not was. a Mulan thing. No, it's not like Mulan. There obviously have been women who have disguised themselves as men to go off to battle. Uh, but Joan of Arc was, I think, fairly. Um, uh, like I think she came to to King Charles and said, uh, "I am. Uh, I I've been given a mission by God to save." France, and I don't think I. I think they all knew she was a woman. It was just yes, seen as yes. This... Um, from what I'm seeing here, uh, that's true. But uh, the reason the church condemned her condemned her was for cross dressing. Right. Uh, well, and uh, let's let's be clear. It was the British, the English, who who yeah. condemned her, and she had been killing them a lot too. So yeah. they were fine looking the for excuses at that point. Yeah, yeah. But the yeah. official charge was cross dressing, which is right. Kind of funny. Well, and uh, demonic <laughs> possession because she she was she may have been. Uh, schizophrenic of course um she said she heard visions and so on um but again it was it was because the other side had her and things that were holy to one side they were able to proclaim was was evil to the other side um okay so my mistake i was under the impression that she was disguised as a man but but i will say that she's not usually as i mean again i don't i don't claim to know all the story of joan of arc but i uh she's not usually associated with being this sort of fiery uh you know, full of anger person. She's doing it, you know, from God. She has, she had a yeah. mission from God. Uh, and both Dark Agnes and, um, and Jarell are very much like what, what we associate with, again, with, as you said, with Red Sonja, like the, the fiery warrior ma- maiden who no man can tame and hates it when anyone underestimates her or tries to tell well, her what to do. There are trappings of Christianity in, in these stories. Uh, she has, uh, a rec- one of the few recurring characters is, uh, uh, Father Gervais, uh, who's the uh, priest of the the keep, um, and uh, in the first story, uh, she has uh, a crucifix around her neck, and that initially blocks out her from sight when she travels into the into the uh, netherworld below the below Shwari. Um She can't see anything, and she realizes it's because the cross is protecting her eyes. So she takes it off, and suddenly she can see the world she's in, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Uh, Presenting like Christianity is true, but it's also just a small part of the whole cosmic balance thing. It's yeah. interesting. Like the idea that Jesus Jesus and God are real, but also there's these even more powerful things out there. Yeah. I, I mean it's hard to say how to interpret that because you could read it as like Christianity on the one hand Protect, except it's not really protecting her, right? Like, yeah, because it, she couldn't function in the world. She couldn't see anything. Yeah, it, it's it's almost like literally it's drawing a veil over her eyes that she needs to put off because she takes the cross off and then she can see the world that she's in. Yeah, and and I mean that's if I wanted to be really, uh, if I wanted to read into it, that's like a knock on religion almost. But um, but I mean it's also true that you're going to write a, a medieval era character. They're going to be very you know, associated with the church and think in, in church terms, but she doesn't feel like a very devout or religious character. I mean, you know, Father Gervais, as you say, he's always, he's like, am I offending you? Am I offending you? No. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, no, um, I, I had the same thoughts reading. It's spelled differently than Ricky yeah, Gervais, yeah. but yeah. Um, no, but he's, um, he, he's like, he's her friend and helpmate, obviously, and looks after her, but, um, I think it's more just an, an acknowledgement of, yeah, they were very religious in the Middle Ages. Yeah. She's she's kind of a... She and Robert... This is something, again, in Robert E. Howard. It's like, 
like Solomon Cain, is literally a Puritan. You would expect him to be very religious, as we discussed in that episode. Um, and he's kind of not. And they even he even says that in the story that he's like he's really a pagan at heart. He just happens to be have born and and into a culture that's deeply religious and to you know to take the solemnity very seriously. But he's not a guy who's constantly praying or doing any of the things that you'd associate with religion. And Jarell's the same way. She's like obviously nominally a Christian. She's medieval. She she wears a cross. She goes you know she goes to the chapel and certain things. She has to die shriven and the, she thinks she's dying in one of the stories they're all urgently trying to get her uh, her uh, shriven and say her confession but she's not she's pagan in spirit i guess you would say yeah yeah and d- it, definitely and, and the world that it's set in like like i said it feels like because the supernatural aspect like christianity seems to have a place in the world but it's a small small part of um, the overall cosmology. There's all these yeah. other um, more powerful gods, and it even has um, uh, uh, dryads in one story. So it seems like it's yeah. a real um, mythological uh, kitchen sink, as they say. I mean that that's kind of the Middle Ages in some ways. I mean even as late as um, like when you're looking at um, C.S. Lewis, like he kind of a very, obviously a very Christian writer, and he was writing about a fantasy version of the Middle Ages, like Narnia is the Middle Ages. Uh, but he's acknowledging all these sort of pagan influences, you know, nymphs and centaurs and dryads yeah. and things. And, that and he... it, yeah, and even earlier, like like I talked about in uh, uh, when discussing um, uh, the Fairy Queen, like the Greek gods are real in that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also very Christian, so it's a, it's a very strange balance. Yeah, I, I think the uh, it, there was definitely, once you got to the Renaissance... Um, Italy and Greece and those countries tended to embrace their sort of pagan heritage. Of course, they, you know, they, they weren't like, oh, they're, they're evil gods and they have to be demolished. It was kind of like, well, that was a, that was a good time for us. (laughs) You know, we had, it was the, we associated it with high civilization and, 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 uh, you know, technological advancements and everything. And, and, uh, there, there, there was a series of sort of, uh, ideologies that would allow you to kind of embrace the Greek and Roman gods and, and that whole ideology as something that kind of found its way into a, a humanist philosophy found its way into, you know, it or co- could coincide with Christianity, I guess. And yeah. that kind of leaked all throughout Europe through that because it was, you know, it was seen as a hair, some part of the heritage, you know, Adam. yeah, like Dante's Inferno, you know, the righteous pagans being in, in limbo, but even like aspects of, the afterlife are straight out of Greek mythology. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he has like he has he literally has later on as I as I mentioned a couple episodes ago he has like Achilles and a couple of other like mythological pagans in heaven because he just they were too cool for him to not <laughs> allow them into heaven. So he says God retroactively made them Christians, um, and it's that shows you the struggle because it's like you, you want to rev- you've got this great history which the and and it was the monks um who kept all that alive over the over the centuries of the dark ages too right so it's associated with learning and and knowledge and and i mean of course latin and greek were the knowledges were the uh, languages of knowledge and study and 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 wisdom uh, and science and advancement so it's that aspect which you know they had to coincide with uh during the middle ages so it was it, you know it, it as much as we talk about the Middle Ages, people being, you know, oh, they're a witch, burn them. And of course that did happen. 
but that was more sort of moment to moment. But all the all the that whole period, that whole thousands thousand years after between um, you know the fall of the Roman Empire and the Renaissance, there was a you know the the folk beliefs and the and the pagan aspects of Europe stayed were they were kind of struggling against with Christianity for a long time. They had to kind of coexist, and they got turned into sort of fairy tales. And you know, in Ireland, the the yeah, old gods yeah, I was got about turned to into mention the, Ireland. Yeah, yeah, they got turned into the Dini Shi, the little little people, and uh, you know things like the 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 black uh, black Mary. Uh, who was probably like like Mary? Basically, the pagan goddesses basically got sort of absorbed into Mary, and even like the devil is coming from you know pagan gods as well, and and like pastoral gods essentially. Speaking of the devil, it's time for a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back on What Mad Universe. Previously on Chat of the Wild. But what we have to do is there are these seeds in these little holes that we have to put specific water on mm-hmm. to make them grow up and we get the mario uh sound effect for the vines going up yes. like it's what what exactly is the sound effect for mario that they use <laughs> <It> is, <laughs> can you guys just do that simultaneously again <laughs> <laughs> thanks chat of the wild breaking down zelda and zelda like games one dungeon at a time wednesdays on the HyperX podcast network Class is back in session, and HyperX has the grade A gear you need for dorm life, remote classes, and for schooling folks online. Shop the HyperX back-to-school deals going on at HyperX.com to help make your return to student life a breeze. Comfortable cloud headsets can help you keep you focused as you cram for finals with some low-fi beats, and stay protective with lightweight pulsefire mice, responsive alloy keyboards, and more. Keep your GPA and your KDA high with HyperX products and accessories. Those, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, um, uh, I wanted to talk about one of the stories, and I'm I'm not sure if it struck you as as interesting as it did me, but I really liked uh, Hell's Guard in particular, um, which is the last one that's not the uh, uh, Northwest Smith story. I think it was just like the the concept of um, she she's going to a a, um, a castle to um, retrieve a um, uh, particular treasure. Um, uh, because uh, her some of her men are being held hostage by a conqueror, so she has to, you know, um, go on a fetch quest to receive this this treasure to give to the guy, so he'll give back their men. Um, and the castle she's going to is is rumored to be haunted. And when she gets there, uh, she finds this sort of weird cult of people living there um, who don't seem like connected to the to the royalty of the place or anything, because it's long been you know abandoned well um, no that's not true they are they are the descendants of the the the, the guy who built the castle i mean oh that's, i thought they just said that okay never i mind. mean uh, it sorry it is true it's it you're right they're probably lying but it seems quite plausible at the time that they are related yeah, like she fair. doesn't question it or anything yeah a- anyway uh, so it turns out that uh uh she's like they're trying to use her as a trap to lure out the ghost because they're a bunch of ghost eaters. Uh, yeah. I really like the concept of, of a group of magicians who like literally feed on ghosts. Mm-hmm. And the more powerful the ghost is, like the more drunk and satiated and whatnot they feel afterwards. It's like coming out of an orgy for them. Um, and 
yeah, I, I just, that's a really interesting idea. I don't think I've seen in a lot of places. Like the idea of, I, I don't know, it's not quite like a Ghostbusters thing because they're not like exercising the place. They're literally just eating the ghosts. Yeah, or drawing power yeah. from the ghosts. It's not 100% yeah. clear to me if the, if, Andred, the ghost, if he's gone after they do that, if he's like dispersed or whatever, but they certainly I, I thought it was I, I was under the impression they, they consumed him, like not like literally ate him through their mouths, but like um, drew his, all his power into them and he yeah. no longer existed yeah, they they don't really say for sure, and you're right it, they, you know that's the general consensus but they talk about how it's the energy surrounding the ghost that they feed on rather than the ghost itself so i mean it's it's a little ambiguous in that sense certainly uh the ghost doesn't want them to feed on him so i think that's the logical conclusion but yeah that, you're right that was a really good I, I i have to say after a couple stories i was kind of feeling like they were a little light on like going anywhere surprising this is a this is a problem you run into with the pre-world war ii pulps sometimes uh they're just kind of filling the page count so like the, the the lesser pulps are often a little predictable they they follow a bit of a formula they don't uh they're often just a dude meets a weird creature and then pushes through it and kills it and that's the end like there's there's often not a lot of twists or anything in it uh this had good and and i was feeling that way like the black god's kiss has a good twist um but then the next couple stories are just kind of like oh and then she goes to another place and things kind of play out more or less as you expect them to play out. Uh, but that, that had a good twist that took the story in interesting directions. I do, both with those guys. And then with sort of the fact that she's, she's ended up with a, a treasure, which she came to use to free her men because a, a guy was saying, get the treasure from Helgard castle and I'll let your men go. And the treasure is whatever it is. They actually never say what the treasure is, but it's cursed. It's going to destroy whoever opens it. And so she's like, okay, I'll give this to him and <laughs> that'll be that. Right. It was a, it was a, so there's a good, you know, that was a solid couple of, uh, that, that was a much more satisfying story, I think, than some of the others. Yeah. I, I see what you mean about the middle ones. Uh, there is a lot of just descriptions of the weird dimension she's gone into. Like that's mm -hmm. pretty much the, yeah, the three in the middle are like long sections of it where she's just wandering through places and like weird stuff is happening. Um, and like the 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 air shimmers differently, and you know that, um, or one of the where it's all like um, um, you can see the mountains in the distance, but incredibly clearly because there's no like atmospheric uh, distortion. Um, yeah, I I was gonna say that there there's again this is the 30s, so I actually forgot it was the 30s. I was I think I was getting her mixed up with Lee Brackett a bit. Uh, the other another female pulp writer that we've that we've talked about because she was writing later she was in the fifties yeah. and and the, I also remember uh, when we talked about the the Silver John stories and what's interesting is that they are uh, you know they're supernatural supposedly but as tends to happen in the fifties the supernatural is less uh, less of a factor and they they kind of pseudo science it they kind of rationalize it um, and and they deal with things like dimensions and the idea of like aliens and things like that. And it's interesting that you see that in this, she, she actually has one of the beings from another dimension at one point, talk about it in terms that make it sound like it is literally an alien planet or another dimension, not, not a, not a fantastical sorceress dimension, but 
oh yeah, we're on. Like he he talks about the curve of space time at one point. If yeah. I recall correctly. And, and uh, characters refer to her as Earth Woman or Earthling. Or that yeah. Thing. That's right. Yeah, they call her Earthling. Um, so it's it it does have that sort of it's science science fiction, but the medieval characters are perceiving it in a in a fantastical way rather than it literally being a fantasy story. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting, and and that's a Lovecraftian thing too. I think Lovecraft tended to like as much as we associate Lovecraft with sort of the fantastical, he did tend to try and ground it in sci science of a pseudoscience at least like comic book science yeah yeah well uh as as has been talked you know he was an atheist so he didn't believe in the supernatural so he wanted to write things that would scare you know an atheist so it's not about ghosts and vampires and stuff it's about you know cosmic beings and that sort of mm. thing right or the and universe it itself like being um if not overly hostile you know uncaring about you Mm-hmm. But also he, he, yeah, he went back and forth like at the Mountains of Madness is very much straight up science fiction, but it has elements from its mythos. And in some of the earlier stories, it's much more like vaguely, vaguely cosmic and, and sorcerous again about it. You know, it's, it's. Yeah. It's, and there is there is straight up magic like there's magicians right uh, in his stories but yeah. well the dream quest of unknown Kadath would be pretty straight up fantasy I mean it's literally set in a dream world um, yeah and also uh, dreams in the witch house has like a literal witch though mm -hmm. it does somewhat frame it as like angles and mathematics but it's still magic yeah no it's that's that's an interesting aspect to it uh, but, but I, I feel like a lot of these stories as you mentioned like huge sections of them are just vibes like it's just you know um descriptions of like the atmosphere and stuff so the plot's not really important to like the middle ones i feel um they're, they're fun to read but uh, I, I i see what you mean in the, in that there's not a lot of surprises or, or twists or um yeah, yeah. It, and, I and I mean, that was the thing about the pulp writers, of course, they were paid by the word. And <laughs> that's, of course, been the famous issue with a lot of <laughs> with a lot of pulp novels that they will never describe things in one word if they can use three. And, and there's the, the famous purple prose and, you know, and 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 Jarell really goes through like a, extremes of emotion at all times. Well, I mean, to be fair, she's experiencing cosmic horrors and you know, extreme things all the time, but she's always like sobbing with rage occurs multiple times. And, uh, just like every reaction is like extremely strong. Everything she encounters is just like the, the blackest monster of the, the utter darkness. So, you know, like everything is just as purple as possible, uh, yeah. in, in the classic pulp faction. Uh, but i think um so. i mean having read a, a bit of this stuff uh from this period um i feel like it's on the upper end of it um like it's definitely a part of like it definitely has the purple prose but i think cl moore was a better writer than most working at the time yeah, she was decent i think i i'd, I'd put her what I've read, yeah, I'd put her above a lot of people because sometimes the bar is a little low. Uh, but yeah. uh, there's definitely a few times where I felt like she was maybe a little awkward with her prose. Uh, I remember she said, at one point she says, like, burning clearly in the clear air. She, like, repeats oh, yeah. words. And, I mean, I t this is, I'm nitpicking. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not going to say she was, like, she definitely has an energy and she pulls you in. 
Um, I was pulled into uh, the Darklands, actually. Um, like, that story had me interested in kinds of, like, I'm going to escape. I don't think it... I, I think the ending was a little unsatisfying. But when she's kind of like... Basically, in that one, she's dying. Uh, an extra-dimensional being, which apparently is just... Like, they've gotten her... She's gotten their attention by extra-dimensionally traveling all the time. Uh, so an extra-dimensional being noticed her, named uh, named uh, Pav, uh, noticed her and swept her up to be her his bride, uh, which she does not want to do. And uh, he's like, well, I, you know, uh, I want you and uh, you will serve me, but I won't take you against your will either. I want you to love me, basically. And she says, well, if I can find a way out, will we, you know, can, will you let me go? And if I can't, you can keep me here and I'll be your bride. So, and that was kind of an interesting setup. And then she finds a woman who's like Pav's would-be lover, who's jealous. And they start alternately conspiring and her trying to kill Jarell because she's her rival. Uh, that came, that started going in some interesting places. I thought that story, uh, the ending was just a bit like predictable. I thought after that setup, but that, that was a good like setup for a story. I thought. Yeah. But um, only the last one has like a really good satisfying ending twist. So it's interesting. I, well, I wonder, no, I thought Black God's Kiss did as well. Yeah, Black I God's Kiss too does. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if um like was she were they they were sold. These stories were sold, unlike the Dark Agnes stories. Uh these did sell to weird tales. Um so I do wonder if like was did CL Moore just decide there wasn't a more of a call for it or because I feel like if she kept going, it could have really gotten better and better. Like they were, de they were improving as they went for the most part. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, yeah, it seems she took a break from this because the quest, the star stone actually, um, came later, I believe like that's much later than the, than Hellsguard, the previous last one. Um, cause she co-wrote it with her husband, uh, Henry Kuttner. The uh, Quest of the Starstone, the Northwest Smith crossover. Right. Uh, the North. When was the Northwest Smith? Uh, when was that? Those did... were mostly in the 30s as well. Like her first, her first story was the first Northwest Smith story. So. Oh, okay. Her All right. First published. No, I think her first story, because because uh, 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 I believe uh, she talked about it with Lovecraft before it was published. Not sure though. Sometimes hard to find the publishing date of uh, some of these. Okay, yeah. 1937. So a bit later than than some of these other ones, but not much later. I was incorrect about that. Um, um, but yeah, that 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 we talked about that one in the Northwest Smith uh, one, but I thought I'd uh, revisit it because I did reread it for this. Um, I I thought it was interesting because it's really a um basically the same thing as a lot of superhero stories, you know, where the right. two characters from different books meet and initially they fight, but then they find common cause to fight the, you know, the real villain. And it's yeah. like basically, you know, um, Batman v Superman or whatever, you know, they yeah, fight it for is. a bit and they're mates or whatever. Yeah. It, it is always very interesting when you go, cause like Howard did that too. Uh, he has, Cull and uh, Bran McMorn, who is his yeah, Celtic I read that one. Yeah. Pictish uh, hero. Yeah, they they cross over. Uh, and yeah, it's absolutely a superhero crossover when you read it. And you're like, oh, wow. So like superhero crossovers 
began in the pulps, essentially. Uh, it's pretty, I mean, it's fairly obvious, the idea of like, oh, I've got two popular characters, what if they met up? E- even if you have to, you know, bend the laws of space and time for them to meet up, which yeah, you usually do. Northwest Smith is in the far future, and he's in space, you know, he operates usually on Mars or Venus, and um, uh, yeah, uh, basically, Jarrell uh, uh, defeats this wizard, and the wizard says, I'll get you, even if I have to, you know, travel to the ends of time to, to do it. So he, he gets, uh, he goes to find a champion. And I guess that the best he can find is, uh, is Northwest Smith in the future on, um, on Mars at the time. Uh, and so he's, you know, sends uh, Northwest Smith after, um, you know, not telling her, telling him the whole details of what's going on. And, you know, that eventually unravels and northwest smith doesn't want to kill her and all that and mm-hmm. they eventually uh get trapped in, a, in another dimension as you do and uh um eventually have to have to team up to defeat the wizard and um right uh end up traveling back to their own times uh i just it's it just funny <laughs> funny because it's it's very contrived it, like yeah. the setup like um really the the best you could find was some bounty hunter some outlaw bounty hunter from the far future like there's nobody else that could fight this woman yeah it's uh, it's, it's author fiat you know they're yeah, in the, yeah. they're, no they're no in i'm not complaining by, just, no but i mean it's literally going the author going like well my two biggest heroes like yeah. they're the world revolves around them literally because they're the heroes so you know uh yeah no no um I'm, I'm not saying she she shouldn't have written it this way it's just kind of funny to think about mm-hmm. it's it is very contrived. Yeah. Um, well, at least at least both of them had a tendency to fall into you know other dimensions and go to other places. Like I, I, as I say, almost every Jarrell story is her doing that. So <laughs> and you know. it happens to Northwest Smith a lot too. Yeah, uh-huh, he falls yeah. into weird magical dimensions as well. As we discussed in that one, that like he's described as a precursor to Han Solo, but it's the stories are basically like Han Solo gets trapped and. Uh, by Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah, they're Every again time. Lovecraftian. Yeah, right. yeah. It is notice note notable to me just to shift a little uh, that yeah a lot of her um, a lot of her work um, basically she met her husband. I think we talked about this a bit in the Northwest Smith episode too. Uh, she married Henry Cutner, who wrote to her believing she because it was C, she wrote under C. L. Moore, so he thought she was a man, and when they realized she was a woman, they they. They started uh, collaborating and eventually got married. Um, but um, it's it, it's notable that I think that's essentially when they stopped doing both Jarell of Jawari and, and Northwest Smith because she and her husband were collaborating on stories. And also, I mean, this is when World War II hit, uh, which disrupted a lot of stuff, including the publishing industry. Um, but it, you know, and then uh, her husband died in the 58 and she was basically done with writing at that point. Um, so it, it's definitely, there's sort of a, a marker there about, you know, where, uh, dictating sort of when, uh, she stopped writing, but it's, it, you, you kind of get a little disappointed that her two, her two characters kind of went by the wayside when she met her husband. Um, don't yeah. know what was going on there, you know, don't want to make, don't want to, don't want to make any calls about what happened. Who knows? She may have just lost interest, but, uh, I mean, they did co-write stuff together, including one of the, including the story that featured both characters. So, like, but as I don't you think say, that was, was against her writing career, but, uh, um, no, no, yeah, 
no, de- I def- was... I, I'm not saying he was like telling her not to write, but yeah. it just like they wrote that story, and then that's basically the end for both of those two characters, right? Like that's it. Yeah, they moved on to something else. They kind of went in a new direction, and that steered her writing in another direction. Yeah, um, like you said, uh, would have liked to see more of these, but you know, we have what we have. Uh, um, and and we, again. I- it, it was li- really, like, that is what gave us Red Sonja. Like, Red Sonja is coming from this and Dark Agnes as much as she's coming from the actual character named Red Sonja in the Robert E. Howard stories. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it's an interesting character. I'd, I'd recommend a few of them, you know, just sort of... Uh, definitely um, Hellsguard. I, I, I particularly liked Hellsguard. I thought that was... Uh, mm-hmm. Had a really good atmosphere and, and a good twist and... Uh, yeah, uh, check them out if any of this interests you. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we she's she's a she's a she's a hidden gem. C.L. Moore, her stuff is uh, if you like pulp at all, if you want to read some good pulp, you know, solid. As I say, not always the most most uh, you know setting the world on fire, but it's a good solid example of the genre. And a couple of them are are really uh, are really strong stories. So. Well, our castle is being stormed, and the enemy wizard is getting ready to trap us in a terrifying dimension beyond the laws of reality, as usual. Uh, so we should probably wrap this up. Uh, we've been red-haired Hellcat Philip Rice. Uh, I, I do not actually have red hair. And castle priest Adam Prosser. Our producer was the elder god of shadow, Alex Ross. And our music was composed by the bard Jack Pierre. Just a reminder, uh, we're both too cowardly to venture into Hella's Guard for treasure, so instead we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. If you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations of comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2S's, or you can go to neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me, or Spear Hafok A for Philip. And also, uh, I'm the comics editor of HeroesLive.tv. That's HeroesLive.tv. I recommend you uh, check it out, subscribe, and you can read a lot of good comics, and we're going to be adding some really cool stuff uh, in the near future, so uh, please check it out. So until next time, we put on our armor and take up our blades in defense of Our Lady's Keep. We bid you adieu.